I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. Today, I'm joined by Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. And we're going to talk about how the recent contested United States election has played out in the Middle East and how it's going to affect perhaps uh, America's democracy promotion efforts in the future. Amy, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You've spent many, many years looking closely at uh, efforts to promote democracy in the Middle East, both from within the region and from outside. Uh, And you've had a front row seat in a lot of elections, contested elections, usually in the Middle East or sham elections or uh, failed attempts at transitions from authoritarianism to democracy. And I'm really interested in uh, how you see today's situation in the United States uh, playing out uh, and echoing in in the Middle East, in a place that's usually been on the, on the receiving end of our scrutiny rather than the other way around. Well, uh, I guess I would start by saying that I'm one of the people who takes uh, Trump's and, and the Republican Party's uh, efforts to try to steal the election quite seriously. Um, I'm not in the camp of people who says, you know, this is a totally incompetent, ham-handed, foolish attempt at a coup, and look how um, these people are flailing around. True, the attempt was quite incompetent, but um, I'm much more focused on the effort and how far they actually took it and potentially how close they could have come to actually, you know, using undemocratic means to overturn the results of a free and fair election in the United States. So I I see this effort as something very, very serious and and quite alarming in terms of the trajectory of American politics. As you say, and we know from all the authoritarian regimes that we've been following so closely for so long in the Middle East that very incompetent and unimpressive people have managed to hold power and do awful things to their countries for for quite a long period of time. It doesn't require political talent or brilliance. Uh, and so the the clownishness or the, the ham-handedness of uh, Trump's machinations recently, in my view as well, was neither here nor there to, to how uh, alarming and sinister it was. Absolutely. And we know from looking at authoritarianism in the Middle East specifically, uh, in other parts of the world as well, but we're talking about the Middle East today, that uh, dictators, you know, gain and hold on to power using a lot of different tools. And of course, one of the most important tools is brutal repression. And so far in the United States, uh, we don't see that coming from our federal government on any wide scale. We do, we have seen, you know, very troubling incidences in recent years of arrests of journalists and, um, you know, many, many human rights violations against American citizens that are really concerning. But so far, we, we certainly in no way have have uh, uh, the, could we compare, you know, the Trump administration in any way to any Arab dictatorship. So we don't we don't see the attempt um, to gain and hold on to power uh, being pursued through the use of of you know violent repression and um, and and brutal repression. But there's another tool, of course, that uh, dictators or would be dictators use uh, to gain and hold on to power, and that is that is disinformation. And we, you and I, are both very familiar <laughs> with the use of disinformation, regime-sponsored disinformation, and Arab regimes, uh, whereby the uh, 
discourse, the narrative that is coming from the government is completely false, has no basis in facts or reality, and yet maybe enough citizens believe it (laughs) or are inclined to believe it that it starts to have an effect on sort of the political psychology of the country. And you don't need everybody to believe the disinformation. You just need enough people to believe it or be willing to listen to it. Now, of course, I just want to make clear that I'm not in any way comparing the United States and our media and information environment to that of of any Arab authoritarian regime, uh, because of course the main difference here is we do have a pluralistic media, a free media, and citizens have access to all different kinds of information to counter what the Trump administration in this case is saying uh, falsely about our election. But we've seen through polling in recent weeks that indicate that large numbers of Republicans accept Trump's narrative that the election was 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 fraudulent and was stolen and that he lost to Biden because because of this alleged cheating. And to me, that's alarming. <laughs> that is alarming and something that reminds me of uh, many, you know, many things that we've seen um, seen in the Arab world and seen Arab dictators doing. Of course, in the case of the Arab regimes, they would put be putting out a narrative that would be the opposite, that they won their election through a free and fair vote, when in, in fact the reality is that there is massive cheating and manipulation that goes on um, to have these leaders, quote-unquote, elected. So it's sort of the inverse narrative. But, but that's something that's very worrying to me, and it seems... Um, familiar to me to see this disinformation being put out from the leader of the U.S., from you know the highest echelons of the U.S. government, that does resonate very much with what you know what we've seen so often in the Arab world. And from from the perspective of the Arab world, both from the perspective of the authoritarians themselves and from the perspective of the citizens who uh, are still hoping to to challenge them and to undo their regimes, uh, it seems a couple of things would be striking watching America these days. And one uh, is the the thing that you were just focusing on, which is outright outright dishonesty and manipulation from the halls of government and the ruling party itself. So the sort of uh, Assad-like uh, or or Egyptian regime-like uh, uh, performance of, of 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 the truth really not mattering at all, and not even pretending to have to make up evidence, just asserting things and going with it, um, and, exactly. and making a mockery of the the whole idea. Like everyone knows it's you know not everyone, many people know it's not true, and they go with it anyway because it serves an end. Um, and, exactly. And I wonder uh, if if you are a uh, not just a, practi- a practitioner of that of that nefarious art, uh, but if you're someone who's resisting it, if it's uh, sort of how how important is it to see America going this direction too? I mean, is that is that a real loss of a sort of alternate? Like to, you know, just to, to in the past, one could look at America and say, for all its flaws, it has this system that works. Maybe we can build one like it. Um, and now we don't even have that as a sort of uh, as an aspirational model. That's such a good question. I think the responses I would imagine and the perspectives from different camps or different parts of the Arab world, different people within the Arab world would be very different. The 
the people I know in the region who work as activists for human rights and democratic values, they tend to be the opposite of naive about politics anywhere. And many of these people are familiar with the United States and familiar with the flaws of the United States. And they, many of the people I know look to the United States for, for support and solidarity, but they don't necessarily, they haven't necessarily idealized the United States for a long time. In fact, I think maybe even going back, well, I guess we could go back to many points in history, but I think the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was really um, uh, something that made quite a few people in the region uh, very, very cynical of the United States government. Of course, many other, many other events as well. I think that what has been really shocking for a lot of people I know in the region, just as it has been for us here in the United States, is the is the the degree of support for Trump among the American public and the apparent um, you know support for him regardless of his numerous um, and continuing anti-democratic actions. I think that has been really, really shocking to see um, the degree of popularity that that Trump has, which we've seen from the election results. I think what if you are an Arab dictator or working in an Arab regime in support of that dictatorship, you, of course, would be taking um, a lot of uh, comfort from Trump's actions because it just further... Uh, I guess you the, these people, these pro-authoritarian people in the Middle East could see Trump's action as just a legitimation of the way that they rule. Um, and and the fact that this is coming from the White House, coming from the President of the United States with support of, you know, a large number of Americans um, would seem to be very affirming, I think, <laughs> that the uh, approach of ruling through sort of disinformation and lies, frankly, um, is something that can be very effective even in a democracy such as the United States. One thing, though, Thanasi, that does give me hope is I think that people, one of the things that people around the world who admire American democracy admire about it is its ability for self-correction. And so what we've seen in the past, uh, you know, recent period in the United States, on the one hand, is very alarming in terms of degradation of democratic norms. But we've also seen a pushback from huge numbers of Americans and some of our institutions to, to counter this and to sort of at least get the upper hand, at least for the next few years, in terms of... Um, making an affirmative case to keep our democratic system. So we still have the capacity for self-correction. And the fact that now we have Biden coming into office with a, a different team of people, a rhetoric that is completely different than Trump's, at least foreign policy statements that appear quite different than Trump's. We'll see how, how it actually is in practice. This, I think, is maybe one thing that people still uh, take uh, to heart about the U.S. system is that we do have this ability for self-correction, which, of course, in an authoritarian regime does not exist. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, 
we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking today with Amy Hawthorne from the Project on Middle East Democracy, and we're talking about how the recent U.S. election is going to echo in uh, democracy promotion efforts uh, probably for years to come. Uh, Amy, before the break, you were talking about our ability to self-correct. And I wanted to move uh, for a minute to focus our attention on the transition uh, and the, the risks of sort of extreme acting out by authoritarians who've been emboldened by Trump uh, or other efforts by Middle Eastern governments to try and move, uh, either move the goalposts or try and accomplish some of their uh, less uh, wholesome policy goals before Trump is gone. Uh, And I wanted to start by asking you about this, this recent accelerated crackdown on dissent that we've seen in Egypt. Can you tell us, uh, maybe our listeners aren't so familiar, can you tell us just a little bit about what's been happening uh, in Sisi's Egypt of late uh, and and how you, how you read that? So re- the most recent uh, developments in Egypt are really alarming. As I'm sure your listeners know, there's been an ongoing wave of repression for, for many, many years now in Egypt, but it keeps intensifying and red lines keep being crossed by the regime that uh, many people didn't didn't think would be possible. And so what's happened in, uh, in the recent weeks is that um, staff members of one of Egypt's only remaining functioning independent human rights organizations, the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, which is a highly, highly respective and effective human rights NGO that has been still standing, still functioning, even during all these years of repression and Sisi's targeted crackdown on the Egyptian human rights movement. The director and two other staff members of EIPR have now been arrested. They are in prison and uh, facing potentially very serious, alarming charges that, um, include things like support for terrorism. And this has been a shocking development because EIPR is uh, is a group that has a profile in Egypt and internationally. They have, uh, the organization works a lot with the international community on the human rights situation in Egypt and um, its its staff members and, and board have a lot of connections around the world. And so I guess some might've thought that perhaps the Sisi regime would not really go so far as to directly try to target and imprison, uh, you know, this and shut down this organization effectively, that there would be too much of an international outcry. But uh, regardless, the Sisi regime has gone ahead and done this. Uh, I still don't know exactly what has motivated them to and they move did against this, EIPR. Yeah. Just to note, they did this right after uh, EIPR people met with a group of foreign ambassadors. And while Secretary of State Pompeo is in the region visiting uh, Arab leaders, so there's there's a a direct, at least you know, sort of the choreography suggests uh, CC is aware that eyes are on him and he doesn't care. Absolutely, and and I think it's also. I would certainly feel comfortable speculating, although, as I said, we don't really know the full story behind the scenes of exactly what has triggered this uh, terrible crackdown on EIPR. But we do know that under the Trump administration, the past four years have been very, very good 
for CC in terms of relations with the United States. Very good. There has been almost no public criticism of any of CC's egregious and ongoing human rights abuses. And in fact, top members of the Trump administration, as we know, President Trump and others have really bent over backwards to uh, praise CC. So it probably could very well be within CC's and the regime's calculations that um, you know, when the new regime comes in, the new the new American administration comes in, there could be more pressure on us. So this is a good moment to act while we still have this administration in power in Washington, who not only doesn't seem to care about our repression, but indeed, at least as far as President Trump is concerned, has actually praised Sisi for his repression. So why not move now and take care of this pesky human rights organization that puts out information that doesn't make Egypt look good and, you know, damages our reputation as they see it. And why not um, uh, take care of this now? And I, and I also think that just from watching Egypt and how Egyptian, Egyptian regimes behave with the United States for a long time, even when they, even when the Egyptian regime makes a move against human rights activists or um, or others, journalists and many others, that is just has to do with Egyptian domestic politics. It's not involving international calculations. At some point, the powers that be in Egypt do figure out a way to kind of leverage these types of situations to um, drain American energy or to uh, try to kind of uh, distract or wear out the United States if, if there's some sort of reaction with the U.S. speaking out against these kinds of moves and diplomats raising these cases. The idea would be to just kind of get everyone really focused on this one issue and meanwhile continue other kinds of repression and just take up a lot of space and noise um, with, you know, diplomats fighting for these people to be released from prison. So there's, and then maybe, maybe CC thinks that he can get something in return if he later backs off against this move against EIPR and that he would get some sort of goodwill in Washington for then being magnanimous and uh, deciding not to keep these people in prison. So there could be a lot of calculations going on here with the U.S. politics. And I was gonna, I was gonna ask sort of more narrowly about the transition period, uh, but but your what you just said made me actually think to pull back a little bit and ask you on a more strategic level. For for decades now, there have been uh, there have been cynics or critics who've said the U.S. doesn't really care about these human rights cases, and you know it's all it, you know. On the one hand, we're invading Iraq and doing all these terrible things, and on the other hand, our diplomats are are you know, asking the Egyptian government or the Syrian government to release this or that person. Uh, but uh, uh, those of us who have followed all these individual cases very closely have seen that despite, uh, you know, sometimes egregious behavior by America in the region, when America uh, uses its its leverage and pressure on behalf of uh, of, of a specific uh, detainee, uh, it often uh, gets results. Not always, but when when it when it pays attention, there are results. Um, and Trump has really changed. Uh, I would I would say in his four years, he's really changed the framing. I mean, the language. You know, even Republicans and Democrats alike have always talked about human rights and political prisoners with with a certain kind of uh, rhetoric. 
And again, we can question whether they mean it or not, but it has been a consistent uh, sort of feature of the American self-image and the American image in the region. Trump came in and said in the very in early on in his tenure, he said, we're no angels, you know, who, who thinks America's perfect? Um, he called CC his favorite dictator. He made clear that he wasn't uh, interested in the moral pedigree of leaders in the region. And even when Jamal Khashoggi was, was, was murdered, uh, he tried his hardest uh, to take that uh, as an issue of concern off the table. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, this is something you've really focused on in your work. Uh, is the is the wider playing field forever changed in in how we can talk about uh, political prisoners, tort people being tortured, people being detained, Americans being detained by supposedly uh, uh, allied regimes? Uh, what what is the the even sort of horizon of possibility for how we talk about this anymore? Well. That's a very good question. You know, when it comes to Trump's actions and performance in office over the past four years and his his many, many, many anti-democratic actions with regard to U.S. foreign policy and with regard to um, domestic policy, to me, the Middle East is the one area where the U.S. policy how can I put this? Trump, as as you alluded to, spoke very bluntly and very openly about the real way in which the United States engages with the Middle East, what the U.S.'s true priorities are. He sort of got rid of all the niceties and all the politesse and just spoke very frankly and in a way that was really sort of crude and hard for Americans to hear. But as those of us who work on U.S. policy toward the Middle East know that in fact, <laughs> the U.S. has for decades supported, um, actively supported author authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. And really, with the exception of, on the one hand, the misguided and illegal invasion of Iraq, um, and on the other hand, um, what the U.S. has done in Tunisia since Tunisia's democratization process began a decade ago, aside from those two examples, one completely misguided and one I think um, in the case of Tunisia, the U.S. has done, you know, a perfectly decent job uh, helping Tunisia's democratic transition. The U.S. has never really <laughs> made a serious effort to promote democracy or human rights anywhere in the Middle East. And so it's sort of this illusion that some people have that before Trump came along, we were really tough on these issues and we always spoke truth to power and uh, and we we spoke out against the Saudi regime and we, we criticized... Um, uh, you know, these authoritarian governments. And for the most part, um, that actually hasn't been the case. Usually what American presidents, their discourse about Saudi Arabia would just be much more diplomatic and not so blunt and crude as the way Trump talks about it. But I hate to say it, but Trump has kind of exposed the reality of the main thrust of U.S. policy toward the Middle East. Not all of it, of course. There in past administrations has been like a small margin for activity for the U.S. to, in some cases, speak out on behalf of democratic values, human rights, advocate on the behalf of certain prisoners. But it really has been a very, very, very limited effort that has really been at the margins of U.S. policy and the main thrust of U.S. policy for decades under Republican and Democratic administrations has been active support for authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, active material, diplomatic and economic support. So when it comes to the Middle East, I think the Trump's behavior 
was less of a departure or, or the main thrust of U.S. policy has not changed as much on, on the issues of democracy promotion as it has with regard to maybe in comparison to other parts of the world where uh, you don't have the United States, for example, under Trump standing up for um, democratic values in some European countries where it's much more of a departure. So what is the long, long-lasting effect of this? I think, you know... I guess I would say two main things here. One would be that that I would hope that people in the incoming Biden administration who have um, s- who have said that the United States after Trump needs to really put democracy promotion at the center of its foreign policy <laughs> around the world as a way of showing that the United States is not Trump. I, I wish that they really would reflect very carefully on the on the reality of U.S. policy um, toward the Middle East, the actual uh, engagement that we have with these regimes, and how, if you take away the layer of Trump's, you know, ugly rhetoric, um, there's a lot of continuity <laughs> with the Trump administration's approach uh, to some of these countries, and. Um, you know, the Obama administration's approach. That's, of course, there's a lot of differences, but there's more continuity than people might immediately want to admit. So I hope they would really reflect on that and think, uh, you know, maybe previous American presidents have been a lot more polite when speaking about the Saudi leadership. But, you know, when has the U.S. really ever taken a serious, committed, consistent stance on behalf of democratic values and and human rights in the Middle East. It's really hard to find examples of that. We'll be right back after this short break. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benayim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, we're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. My guest today is Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. And we're talking about how the U.S. election uh, is going to reverberate in efforts to promote rights and democracy in the Middle East. That's sobering and I think largely correct. Uh, you know, one one corrective is to just deflate the language. So, you know, maintain a similar kind of policy and just drop the, uh, drop the, 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 the false, uh, uh, the false rhetorical commitment to rights and democracy. The other would be, uh, to, to actually really reorient towards some different style of promoting democracy. And, uh, you know, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Biden himself or people around him have talked for a long time about beginning his term with a, a summit, of democracies. And when I, when I hear that, I think, you know, how will they decide who to invite? You know, we know, will Hungary be invited? Will, uh, uh, you know, how will they make clear to allies, you know, will, will, will Israel be invited and will there be a reference to, uh, the, the people without status in the occupied territories and so on. Um, and I think, I imagine that's the sort of thing that either won't really come to pass or if it does, will, will amount to a lot of artful dodges. Uh, but, I'm, I I, I want to know how, how if at all, you imagine a a better, more sincere, more effective approach to democracy promotion or rights promotion uh, could take place under under a Biden presidency. 
Well, it would really require a structural change, not just a change in style and rhetoric, and style and rhetoric are very important in, in diplomacy, but a structural change in how the United States engages with these regimes in the region and on what basis. So, for example, it would take uh, uh, a, a restructuring of our assistance packages <laughs> to these governments, to so many Arab governments, um, and what kind of aid we're giving, military aid, no questions asked, are we going to continue this flow of basically a billion dollars in free money for the Egyptian military each year without any constraints? So changing the nature of our aid relationships dramatically in favor of Maybe not in active, uh, with the active goal of promoting democracy, but maybe with the more modest goal of not giving direct material support to authoritarianism, just kind of pulling back rather than sort of actively trying to promote. So we could have structural changes in our aid programs. We could have uh, changes in our arms sales, which is extremely important, as you know, on what terms and conditions are we going to be selling arms to these governments and what happens when they use them to carry out mass atrocities, use our weapons. What is our role in that? Um, what kind of diplomatic attention, uh, Oval Office visits, we pay to leaders who are, un, you know, we, we, we give to leaders who are undemocratic and, and, and very, very serious human rights abusers. Um, is there going to be any White House welcome for, for many of these leaders? I mean, there are so many things. I mean, those are just a few examples. Um, it would basically take a restructuring of our policy toward many of these Arab regimes to really start to change um, our approach in favor of promoting democracy and human rights. Even if Biden doesn't undertake such a structural change, though, there are, I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd still be happy to see even much more action and positive um, positive approach on these issues around the margins <laughs> than what we've seen at the Trump during the Trump administration, which has been, you know, very, very little attention and effort to any of these things. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm often, uh, uh, I'm often troubled by, uh, you know, I mean, so there, there's a longstanding current of, of, of sort of triumphalist interventionist, uh, uh, American foreign policy thinking that holds that America really determines what happens in all these countries. We know that's not true, but there's been, a, I think, a really unhealthy uh, counter current that sort of holds that nothing the U.S. does matters. And it's sort of this, you know, modesty taken to an extreme. And while it's correct to say that America cannot make uh, CC uh, behave like a, like a, democratic rights respecting leader it or, or for that matter you know the, the rulers of Saudi Arabia or or Iraq or or elsewhere it absolutely can um, affect some of the things that happen there and it certainly can reduce its complicity um, and that's the that's the 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 shift in the discourse that I would really like to see uh, because you know it's it's a sort of fake argument to say like you know will we or won't we do the things that will make uh, you know make these regimes start respecting you know, free press or political dissent like you know okay that's not in our wheelhouse of abilities it is however in our absolutely in our uh, capabilities to not let Saudi Arabia use our weapons uh, for the war in Yemen uh, to not let uh, uh, Egypt use our uh, supplies to attack peaceful protesters and so on. And uh, that, that's a that's a sort of way of talking about it that I still haven't heard too much because I think politically, even the, you know the people around 
President-elect Biden don't want to uh, antagonize the stakeholders in in the U.S. defense industry and the the contracts that enrich so many different congressional districts, and that's the the kind of politics that I'm I'm intrigued and hopeful. Uh, I mean, I hopeful. I'm not optimistic that that's going to be a big part of the next four years, but that's what I would like to see the the dialogue around rights uh, move to, because that's a place where we not just have leverage, but where we can say, okay, maybe we can't stop these regimes from uh, from hurting people, but we can absolutely stop giving them the the explosives to do it with. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And, you know, just to underscore your point that, I mean, it, it's absolutely true that the, the, the role of the, the, the United States actions or inactions in some cases in the Middle East and North Africa is not the cause of authoritarianism and repression in this region. We see two of the, the worst regimes in, in the broader region, um, just truly, truly appalling human rights records, mass atrocities, Syria and Iran. And these are two countries, you know, with which the United States, um, who, whom the United States sees as antagonistic governments. So the idea that repression and authoritarianism is a result directly or only or mainly of U.S. actions, I think is incorrect. But as you said, I think it's just also incorrect to paint a picture of the United States as some sort of bystander that really has no influence and no ability to change anything. That is a, a narrative that U.S., uh, some Americans uh, convince themselves of to avoid having to think too deeply about what the U.S. is actually doing and has been doing in this region for decades. So it's a very convenient fiction to say, you know, what can we really do in Egypt anyway? We don't have that much influence. And and Sisi's going to do, you know, what he wants to do regardless of what we say. That way of framing it completely mischaracterizes the U.S. role in Egypt for many decades, which is basically direct financial subsidy to the pillar of the Egyptian authoritarian regime, which is the military, in addition to all kinds of other economic support. I mean, we do have, in most of these countries, the main thrust of our policy is to support the incumbent regime. And so, the, you know, the idea that we have no influence and no role and that we're not deeply implicated in what's going on and helping to subsidize it is, is just false. Now, of course, if we dramatically cut our military aid to Egypt tomorrow, would Egypt suddenly transform into a democracy? Of course not, because we know and we should understand Americans should be much more sensitive to this after experiencing the past four years under Trump that the factors that fuel authoritarianism and anti-democratic views are very, very complex. I'm not even sure we fully understand it in our own society, what has given rise to Trump and why so many people support him. So, and how he was able to, to get rid of so many governance norms um, so quickly and seemingly with impunity. So, um, the but the idea that uh, the United States, you know, if the United States changed the way that we engage with this with these regimes and held back some of our active support for their authoritarian behavior, it would be a factor in the mix that I think in the long run would contribute positively to uh, democratic change in this in this Middle East and North Africa region over the longer term. So I'm going to ask you one last question, and I know I've kept you longer than I said I would. Uh, so <laughs> last question. We've had two elections in a row in the United States in which uh, uh, President Trump once won and once lost, and in both cases claimed uh, uh, systemic fraud. And we've had 
many years of of endless uh, discourse about fake media and about not, you know, basically in which facts are no longer the currency of uh, the political narrative. Will this mean in the future that it will be impossible for uh, the United States or even its allies to encourage countries in the Middle East and North Africa region to hold free and fair elections and respect an independent and, and serious free press? No. If you have, for example, a Biden administration advocating on behalf of these things, it should be clear to the world and to leaders in the Middle East that Biden is a Democrat, uh, lowercase d, and he does support and uphold democratic values at home. And he believes in the American system of democracy and he ran for government, I think, in large part to protect it and try to save it and salvage it. So once you have a different group of people in power, I can't imagine, I mean, Biden does have some credibility to say these things. And of course, we should remember that the main thing that gives the U.S. a lot of potential influence in this region to advocate on behalf of certain norms and values, of course, is just our power, the power that the United States has in this region and in the world, um, even if our own democracy is is looking um, very troubled at the moment. But what I do hope that Americans, U.S. officials, policymakers who are working on these issues in the new administration, what I hope they, not so much how the Middle East is going to look at the U.S. government, I think certainly with some skepticism, and there's there's no doubt, despite what I just said, that the U.S. brand, so to speak, has been severely, severely damaged. I, I want to make clear, I think we have a lot of reason for concern, but I do hope that uh, people who are in positions of power shaping policy toward the Middle East and shaping what the U.S. may do to speak out on behalf of democracy and human rights in these countries, I hope they have a much better appreciation of how fragile democracy is and how hard it is, can be, to fight against authoritarianism and how uh, complex and difficult uh, democratic politics can be and basically have a greater feeling, a greater appreciation of how difficult political change can be and how hard it is and can be to push back against, you know, falsehoods and breaking of laws, breaking of democratic norms. In other words, I would hope that people who are working on these issues in the new administration have more, a, a bit more maybe humility about democratic development and upholding human rights and feel maybe more of a feeling of solidarity with those on on whose behalf they're trying to advocate from Washington, rather than taking the approach of, we're the United States, we know best, um, everyone should follow what we believe and what how we practice, but rather a feeling of, hey, we have solidarity with everyone around the world who is fighting on behalf of democracy and human rights, just like many of us have been trying to do here at home in America. And the authoritarian relapse is a global phenomenon. It's not- Absolutely. It's a global phenomenon and it's happening here in the United States as well, I think to the shock of many Americans, but that should cause, I think, a lot of introspection (laughs) Um, and, and sensitivity and appreciation for how hard it is Look how hard some of us have, many Americans have been fighting these past four years. Imagine trying to do that in a place like Syria, in a place like Egypt, in a place like Saudi Arabia, where there are none of the rights and freedoms that we enjoy here in this country, and where people risk their lives for standing up for those things. So I would hope that um, it would make people feel um, a bit more um, 
appreciation of just how difficult and how hard and how dangerous it can be to stand up for these things. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis at the Century Foundation, and I've been talking with Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. Uh, And I think we'll be drawing on Amy's expertise in years to come to promote rights and democracy all over, including right uh, here at home. Uh, Thanks a lot for your time today, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.